Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This is an RNZ podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast hour. I'm Richard Scott and each week I put on my headphones, listen to as many shows as I can and share the best of what I hear with you. Coming up today, the hunt for extraterrestrial life. So where are the aliens? Then finding Drago, trying to make sense of a real-life mystery that's linked to the Sylvester Stallone boxing epic, Rocky IV. Would you maybe love Ivan Drago enough to have written a book about Ivan Drago? Sure. Are Are you you Todd Noy? (laughs) (laughs) Plus, a new show called Conviction follows a colourful private eye as he tries to prove a New York teenager's innocence. And Neon uses popular culture, our films, TV shows and computer games, as a way to find out more about the history behind them. You could argue that Predator is, in a way, a metaphor for America's impact in jungle warfare. And next time you hear something good, please do get in touch and let me know about it. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address. And on Twitter, we're at RNZ Podcast Hour. So, quick question, where do you stand on aliens? Are you a believer? Well, according to a recent study of 26,000 people in 24 different countries, about half of us do think there is some other intelligent life out there in the universe. And another 25% of us are undecided voters, waiting to be convinced. This BBC documentary caught my ear last week, summarising what we do and don't know about extraterrestrial life today and what we're doing to change things. The Earth is a beacon, broadcasting electromagnetic waves across the cosmos. Radio, television, with music, sitcoms, drama, news. Rocket Man is on a suicide mission for himself. And the further out you go, the older that news gets. Nelson Mandela's first steps back to freedom. The German people awoke this morning as one nation. Obviously a major malfunction. On planets 50 light years from Earth, you'd know we had a space program. The Eagle has landed. You'd hear our comedy, our quiz shows, advertising. After seeing and hearing the new 1951 Dumont telesets, you'll never be satisfied with less. 80 light years away, you'd receive the first transmissions to make it through Earth's atmosphere, radar. There are about 10 German machines dive-bombing the British convoy. Which is just there are hundreds of billions of planets in our galaxy alone, and evidence from space telescopes suggests tens of billions of these, tens of billions, could be similar to Earth. So, where are the aliens? I'm Seth Shostak, senior astronomer at the SETI Institute. SETI is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And for the BBC World Service, I'll be hearing about the latest efforts to find E.T., 
talking to some of the pioneers of the search and asking why we've not discovered evidence for alien civilizations. Whenever I sit on an airplane, whenever I go somewhere to talk, people are really eager to know what the answer is. We have a desire to understand how we fit in. That's Jill Tarter, a founder of the SETI Institute and one of the most distinguished scientists in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Her work inspired the lead character, Ellie Arroway, in the 1997 movie Contact, where aliens beam a message to Earth. And even more important, she picks it up. As in the film, the real search for E.T. has involved using giant radio telescopes, big antennas, to listen to the cosmos. And the real-life drama has been every bit the financial and emotional roller coaster. Sometimes we had funds, and then the next day we didn't. And very hard to plan systematic exploration under those conditions. And there have been a couple of times when we thought we might have detected a signal, exactly the thing that we were looking for. And that's a real rush. That was a, a thrill, followed by a letdown when we figured out that, no, it really wasn't coming from a distant star. It was coming from a satellite that was orbiting the sun, SOHO. It sounds like, you know, it's like somebody who's looking for the, I don't know, cure for cancer, and they're in the lab one day, and suddenly something seems to work. And I've often wondered, what would their reaction be? You know, oh, now I have to write this up? Or, you know, did they start yelling Eureka and running around naked and having a drink? I mean, what what was the deal? Well, if they in the lab were like me at the telescope, they would get incredibly excited and somehow dumber than I usually am. The signal was clearly artificial. And so I wrote a little computer program that looked at some of the characteristics of this signal, but I had been sloppy and I hadn't printed it out very neatly. And so the answer that I was looking for was right there. Yes, indeed, we had seen that frequency spacing, that signature, uh, a few times before when looking in some other directions. And so very quickly I could have known that that signal had nothing to do with the star that we were currently observing, but I was so excited was it disappointing? Because you'd been at this for decades, right? I'm an astronomer. I'm an engineer. I actually can manipulate numbers, and I can appreciate how big the universe is. I can understand that our star, the sun, is one of only a few hundred million stars in the Milky Way galaxy, and that there are almost as many galaxies in the universe as there are stars in our own galaxy. So there are a lot of places to look. We talk about looking in the radio part of the spectrum, but there are billions of channels to search. And so you could know going in that this could be a multi-generational problem, that we might not succeed. And so the only kind of people I think that do this work are people who get pleasure out of doing it better tomorrow than we could do it yesterday. Most of these people are based in the Bay Area near San Francisco. The SETI Institute is in the Silicon Valley, and Dan Wertheimer works across the Bay in Berkeley. I'm the chief scientist at the University of California Berkeley SETI program. By rights, Dan should be a Silicon Valley billionaire. He spent his youth hanging out at the Homebrew Computer Club pioneering personal computing 
with the likes of Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. But instead, he's devoted his life to searching for space aliens. We're surrounded by electronic equipment, and it is oscilloscopes over here, and, and uh, racks of electronics over there, and stuff on the floor, and even a hammock for the grad students who work here late into the evening. So what is it that you're working on here, anyhow? We are testing detectors for a new optical SETI experiment to look for laser signals that might be from distant civilizations. And in this box here is one of the detectors, and we're looking at, on the oscilloscope, you can see like individual photons that are hitting that detector. Okay, so let me just get this straight, because most attempts to try and find ET uh, look for radio signals, and so this is not about that. This is looking right. for something else. So the early SETI experiments used radio signals because that's what Earthlings did. We've been sending radio signals out into the universe for 70 years or so. Now we have lasers. Lasers are very good for interstellar communication if you point them in the right direction. Radio is good for sort of omnidirectional, sort of sending signals in all, all different ways. But are you saying that maybe the aliens would be trying to get in touch by flashing a laser our way, and if so, why haven't we seen that already? I mean, people have been looking at the sky from time immemorial. Why haven't we seen those flashes? So I think Earthlings are kind of a primitive civilization. We're just learning how we might communicate with other civilizations. We've only had radio for 70 years. We've had lasers for 50 years. We're just getting in the game, learning how we might intercept these communications. So we've got a lot of searching to do, and we're just learning how to do it. So I'm proud of the progress we're making, but I still think we're just getting started. It seems like your detector here is in a plastic lunch pail. Right. I, I, I don't know whether it really is a lunch pail, but you know what's inside the, the pail? What this thing can do, it's an amazing gadget. And uh, we couldn't have done this experiment until recently. This came out for uh, medical imaging, people that are trying to find cancers, tumors. They're sensitive to individual photons that hit them and it has a lot of amplification. If we connect it to a telescope, we can detect a laser signal from the other side of the galaxy, 100,000 light years away. So it's a very sensitive detector. It's sensitive to a broad range of wavelengths, a lot of different colors, and it can see individual photons uh, at very high speed. So this is a new technology that we wouldn't be able to do, and it's cheap because it's used in these medical cancer detecting machines, the PET scanners. It's time to commit to finding the answer to search for life beyond Earth. The global effort to look for intelligent life has never been more energetic. The breakthrough initiatives are making that commitment. In 2015, at the Royal Society in London, physicist Stephen Hawking helped launch Breakthrough Listen. This $100 million initiative is backed by billionaire entrepreneur and philanthropist Yuri Milner and supported by Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, and it involves many of the world's leading astronomers. It's uh, the world's most comprehensive, sensitive, and intensive search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Andrew Simeon is director of the Berkeley SETI Research Center and principal investigator for Breakthrough Listen. The core of the Breakthrough Listen observational program includes observations of a million nearby stars, about a hundred nearby galaxies, and a complete survey of the Milky Way galactic plane. So this program is just simply far more comprehensive than anything that's been done before. Now, what allows you to do that? I mean, why wasn't this done 20 years ago? 
Well, there are a lot of answers to that question. Of course, a, a very important one is resources. Uh, we have the funds to be able to purchase access to telescope time, to buy computers, uh, and to hire scientists uh, in order to, to actually perform the search. But also, computers have gotten much, much faster. And the fact that computers have gotten so much faster uh, and so much cheaper allows us to survey far more of the radio spectrum than we've ever been able to do before. And we're also very motivated. Of course, we now know that most of the stars, perhaps all of the stars in our galaxy, have a planetary system. A good fraction of those uh, probably has a planetary system that includes a planet in what we call the habitable zone of the star, the region around the star where liquid water could exist on the surface of the planet. So we have resources, we have technology, and we have uh, significant motivation. Some of So Where Are the Aliens, presented by Seth Shostak and produced by Richard Hollingham, a boffin media production for the BBC World Service. And you can find the rest of that if you look for BBC, the documentary podcast. The Russian towers above the American. It's a true case of David and Goliath here. It's unbelievable, the, the, the condition of those men, but the Russian I must break you. Ivan Drago's the villain of that epic boxing film, Rocky IV. He's a huge, scary Russian guy, a mountainous man-machine played by Dolph Lundgren, sporting a very distinctive peroxide blonde flat top. And he kills Rocky Balboa's friend, Apollo Creed, in the ring. Creed appears to be in very serious condition. The man If he dies, he dies. Well, Aussie film geeks and comedians Alexei Toliopoulos and Cameron James are big Rocky fans, and they got seriously obsessed with some fan fiction that follows the film franchise. It's a book about Ivan Drago's life after Rocky IV called Drago on Mountains We Stand, and it's written by a mysterious author called Todd Noy. Noy seems to be a former sports journalist. He might have won a Pulitzer Prize. He's reported to have disappeared in the early 90s. And he also might have a son with the unlikely name of Quince. In Finding Drago, they go on the hunt for Todd Noy. And here's academic Rukmini Pandey explaining some of the motivations of the people writing this kind of fan fiction. Sometimes it's about creating a sense of representation that isn't there in the original text. Sometimes it's about thinking, uh, you know, what if there was a Hindu Harry Potter or what if what happens when you are a Jewish person in Hogwarts? There's a lot to be said about how these fictional universes are constructed and how they can be challenged or expanded by readers. And that, I think, is the pleasure of fan fiction. You know, there is a impression that fan fiction writers do it because they're not very good or because you know they don't have the imagination to construct their own work but I think that's a little reductive because there is so much creativity that goes into these sometimes it's about I want to work through what this character could be you know so for Ivan Drago I would imagine that it would be about You know, what is this war machine that is being built in this Cold War, uh, you know, Russian idea of constructing the perfect killing machine, really? And, you know, kind of thinking about what could be the deeper psychological aspects of it. So it's a lot of kind of deconstructing those ideas and looking at flat characters like Ivan Drago and, you know, trying to think about what makes them tick. 
Do most people write under pseudonyms? Is that common in fan fiction world? Oh, yes. Yes, yes. Most people will write under pseudonyms. Why is that? A copyright, a lot of the time. Uh, I mean, fan fiction is under US law. It is protected under fair use uh, because it's seen as transformative work. But it is still open to being cracked down upon by people who, who think sometimes that it is some kind of infringement on uh, their narrative universes. Uh, a lot of writers don't actively prosecute it because, again, it's part of fan community and it actually helps them. Uh, but some, some have uh, been quite upset about how people take their characters and what they do with them. And when I, when I started out, people used to be really careful about kind of divorcing their identities uh, from their fandom activities, possibly because fans are sometimes seen as weird, you know, and seen as over-invested. Uh, and, you know, so that obviously is something that people are aware of. Uh, but I think that that has changed. Uh, you know, people are now much more willing to identify themselves as fans, um, as fans mm. yeah, as fans and as people who, you know, yeah, who may be by normative standards a little bit weird, but, you know, <laughs> who engage in, in these communities and produce some pretty good stuff. All right. Thank you so much for talking to me, Rukmini. You were you absolutely so delightful and a pleasure. Thank you so much. I'm glad this was useful and best of luck for your continuing search. Oh, I love Rukmini. You know what I find interesting? Rukmini thinks that this could be someone working through their issues with Drago. Now, Alexi, you yourself have some issues with Ivan Drago. Cameron, I think I know what you're suggesting, but Rukmini also said that people that write fan fiction like to put representation of themselves in there. Mm -hmm. So if I were to rewrite a Rocky story... It would also have the premise of, what if Rocky was Greek? <laughs> it wouldn't be that different. It'd be pretty similar. Yeah, maybe instead of punching slabs of beef, he'd be punching plates. <laughs> punching goddamn Dolmatis. Can I say this stuff? <laughs> anyway, Cameron, while you were doing that, I went looking for some journalists. And look who I found. I feel like I've hit a jackpot right now. I've got Tracy Holmes. She's a longtime sports broadcaster and journalist. Check out her CV. She's presented Grandstand. Oh, yeah. News radio. Mm -hmm. You can hear her every Sunday on the tickets. Tracy, you've worked in and outside of the ABC since 1989. First of all, what was the world of sports journalism like back then? I was thinking back about my early days here. Yeah. So I came here as a sports trainee broadcaster, which was like a two-year kind of internship. And you learn from the best, you know, all, all those Great names that people still talk about. Yeah. Jim Maxwell, oh, cricket. Yeah. You know, Jerry mm. Collins commentated, I don't know how many swimming gold medals at mm. the Olympic Games. Mm. Uh, Norman May was around. He'd always oh. pop in. I, I was lucky enough to go and train under the great George Grilizic from WA, oh, who, didn't. along with wow. Benny Pike, um, had some of the best boxing commentary you are ever likely to hear. Really? So you knew, like, boxing commentaries from WA back in the yeah. 80s? Yeah. KO Magazine, ever heard of that? Yeah. yeah. Boxing Magazine. Boxing Mag, yeah. It's now defunct. Yeah. And the Guardian? Like boxing, almost. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> UFC No, no, no. I, I like boxing. Yeah. I do, and I don't. I can't explain why. You know, yeah. one of the earliest sports I had to go and cover was boxing, mm. and I remember the first time I turned up at this bout, and there was just 
blood being sprayed everywhere and I thought this is a poor, I don't think I can sit here any longer and then I sort of had this realisation, these guys, no one's forcing them to be there, yeah. they want to be there, this is such a battle of mental wills and so I've been a bit of a fan even though I can't justify the fact that in 2018 mm. I don't think two people should be hopping into a square mm. and bashing each other's brains out. But but there's something tribal about it. Mm. Yeah, it taps in you, in your primal place. Yeah. So you knew, like, boxing commentaries from WA back in the yeah. 80s. Yeah. Did you know Todd Noy? No. Really? Todd Noy, he's a, he wrote about boxing, VFL in the 80s, sports journalist. How? No, how I no, sorry. How could I not know about him? He's what's he done? He's he used written... to write for KO magazine and uh he's a, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist from The Guardian, I think as well. Yeah, from The Guardian he as well. He mainly covered boxing. Uh he's a WA journalist. Have you heard of VFL Weekly? No. Mm. Writing for VFL Weekly. He also he won a Pulitzer. Yeah. <laughs> maybe Is maybe that... it was for The Guardian or something else. Is that rare? Well, I also think it's highly unlikely because I think the first Australian to win a Pulitzer was 2006, wasn't it? Oh. Oh. Our guy's been missing since 1992. Uh, Geraldine Brooks was the first. I think there's only been two. And was that for sports journalism? Uh, No. So, have okay, have there been any Look, sports journalists win Pulitzers? I think many should have. I agree with yeah, you. I agree. <laughs> I absolutely agree, 100%. And, and I think sports journalists yeah. around the world, they are some of the great writers. Yeah, yep. Ray Barone is our favourite sports journalist. Is he? Mm. Is yeah, he? from Everyone Loves Raymond's. <laughs> Glamorises a lifestyle a lot on that show, though. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back to WA. I'm, yeah, I'm WA. curious about that. So you were... Working in WA, what time? What what years are we talking? Oh, so this is uh, eighty nine, ninety. That sounds around. Uh, That's around Noy's time. Mm-hmm. Noy disappeared in January nineteen ninety two after a long battle with alcohol and drug addictions. Presumed dead, a memorial service was held in his honour in Perth in December nineteen ninety five. Doesn't ring any bells. But you know. Having lived and worked in Perth, and so I was at everything that was there, from World Swimming Championships yep. um, to the cricket to uh, the AFL to whatever was happening, I never remember his name coming up, like right. in press boxes anywhere. Or mm. And, you know, you, you talk with everybody. You get to yeah. know everybody. Yeah. It's the scene. Whether they're, you know, Ken Sutcliffe or, um, you know, Jacqueline Magna and Karen Ty were, were there <laughs> around those times, Ray Hadley, Bruce McAvaney. Uh-huh. What about at a premiere for like a Rocky movie or anything? Would you have seen, would you have remembered him there? Do you like Rocky? I do, actually. So do I. I think they're the best sports movies ever. What about Ivan Drago? I love Ivan Drago. Would you maybe love Ivan Drago enough to have written a book about Ivan Drago? Sure. Are Are you you Todd Todd Noy? Is it you? Have we found you? And you have to be honest. <laughs> you have to tell us the truth. Are you Todd Noy? Do I look like Todd Noy? Well, no. we haven't How got a photo of him. Pulitzer hanging around my neck. <laughs> That's I wish true. I was Todd Noy. That's he true. sounds like some kind of genius. He well, He's... apparently he is. I can't find any information about this guy, and there was no archived articles of his for VFL Weekly or KO Magazine. Or anything. I honestly thought you were going to be the key. Yeah. Look, I'm really sorry. I'm so sorry to disappoint you. Um, 
but it's also got me intrigued now. I just Do you think there would have been many journalists who focused almost exclusively on boxing in that time or would there not have been no, enough work for them? No, there wouldn't have been them? enough work for them. Okay. Although, you know, Noi Noi mm. yeah. might have been independently wealthy. Oh, that's something we might have yeah. run off with all his money. Okay. He might not be dead at all. Well, we might think that he might not be because this book is brand new and he went missing in the 90s and the book is signed by him. (laughs) (laughs) So we think he might still be out there and that's what we're doing. We're on the search for Todd Noy. Why? I don't know. Some of episode two, The Search Begins from Finding Drago from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, presented by Alexi Toliopoulos and Cameron James. Here's a new show I heard about this past week. This is the story of a band that changed everything. We're doing this just to be a little part of history, right? We want to blitzkrieg the world and stomp everyone. A band that turned punk into protests. If there's anything going to be in the future, it's going to be from all parts of everything, not just one white way down the middle of the road. It taught us to fight for what really matters and to do it loud as hell. Would you try to incite an audience to riot? Of course. We try it every night. The band that burned so brightly, they had to burn out. And how their light lives on today. This is Stay Free, the story of the clash. Oh, knock it off. We've still got another song to do, yeah? And if that narrator's voice sounds familiar, well, it's Chuck D off Public Enemy. Stay Free, The Story of the Clash, an eight-part series produced by Spotify and BBC Studios out this Thursday, the 28th of February. And I'm trying to get this guy on the show too. So I just speak into the microphone and then a, a, a digital audio file is constructed by, by Nick, our engineer, and then he delivers it by car or airplane to the internet. And then those guys do their thing and whammo, instant podcast. Every installment will be an adventure that I will rip into like a juicy porterhouse steak. Just like the ones they've served at Balbanados, just north of Old Town in San Diego. Since 1965, Jim and Jackie Balbanado have been serving the greatest cuts of meat and wild game. And listen to this. They've only been shut down 11 times. That's pretty good, considering they have whole roasted camel on the menu. The Ron Burgundy Podcast, hopefully coming soon to the podcast hour. Conviction is a new release from the recently acquired Gimlet Media. It's a series that'll feature a new piece of investigative reporting each season. At the centre of this particular story is a colourful private detective called Manuel or Manny Gomez, who sounds like he's just stepped off the set of Miami Vice, which just happens to be one of his favourite TV shows, and he also really likes Phil Collins. Saki Canafo tags along as Gomez tries to clear a teenager called Pedro Hernandez, who's in prison accused of shooting another youth. 
And like the latest third season of Serial, it presents the US criminal justice system and the actions of the police in a less than flattering light. One day I was sitting with Manny in his apartment and the subject of his mom came up. She lives in the Bronx too, about a 15 minute drive from Manny's place. How often do you speak to your mother now? I speak to her daily, you know, and I help her out. So, you know, and unfortunately she's losing her vision. She's going blind. I mean, my mom is like 95% blind, 90, not about 90% blind. I try to give her an eye. What did you give her? One of my eyes. Because, you know, I figured, hey, I got two eyes. I, I'm dexterous. I shoot with both hands. I give her an eye. I mean, you know, if you give a kidney, we do kidney transplants. We do lung transplants. We do heart transplants. Hell, we even do liver transplants. So I said, well, why can't we do an eye transplant? You actually asked the doctor? I asked eight doctors. And they were in shock and in awe. I tried to, you know, genuinely give her an eye. But uh, all the eye doctors uh, wouldn't do it. That whole story about the eye, it felt a little over the top, possibly embellished. I mean, did Manny actually try to get a doctor, eight doctors, to remove a working eye from his head and give it to his mom? Listening to him, I have to say, I wondered if he was just making the story up on the spot to impress me. Every now and then I'd ask him to put me in touch with his mom, but he never would. And then, one day, I was talking to Manny on the phone. Are you driving now? Unfortunately, yes. Where are you headed? Uh, I'm actually uh, picking up my mom to help her out. Oh, is that her? I heard someone in the background. Yeah, it's my mom. Say hi, mom. Hi, how are you? Good afternoon, sir. This is a reporter. Good afternoon. How are you? I've heard so much about you. Thank you, sir. I hope good things. Thank you. We exchanged pleasantries for a few minutes, and then, without prompting... You wanted to give me an eye. Can you believe that? She launched into this story. Who takes an eye? Who takes an eye from their kid? He just took me to Florida recently um, in May to get stem cells, but it didn't work out. And he worked so hard, and he paid for me, the dog, my husband. He put me in a beautiful hotel in a very nice... <laughs> but the procedure didn't work. I'm sorry. Anyway, I think that's about it. I've just been very blessed. Compared to other people with their kids, I've just been very blessed. Over the months I spent with him, I'd hear a lot of stories like that story about the eye. Stories with Manny cast as the hero, striving to do the impossible. And I'd often think to myself, he's got to be making it up. But then... I'd speak to someone else, or I'd dig up some new piece of information. And I'd remember, just because his stories sound made up, doesn't necessarily mean they are. From Gimlet Media, I'm Saki Kanafo, and this is Conviction. After presenting the prosecutor with all of his evidence of Pedro's innocence and getting nowhere, Manny realized he had to try a new tactic to get Pedro out of jail. It wasn't enough to just build a case for Pedro. He had to build a case against the cops he believed were targeting Pedro. 
and there was one cop in particular who he was convinced was behind it all. Detective David Terrell. All right, we're off. It's in front of I'll sit between you in the back. My producer Meg and I climb into Manny's car, actually his mom's car, a sensible navy blue Honda. Manny's car, the silver Corvette convertible, is in the shop. Hi, Megan. Hey, how are you? Oh, it's been a real crazy day. Um, just been nonstop. We drive over to Pedro's neighborhood. It sits in the South Bronx, the poorest congressional district in the country. It's about seven on a cool summer evening, and people are out and about sitting on the stoops, mingling on the sidewalks. Manny's here to find out what the neighborhood can tell him about Detective Terrell. Can you tell us what you're wearing on this mission? Yep, I'm wearing my black, black ops jacket. It has the American Eagle with the flag going across of it. It says Black Ops Private Investigators. Black Ops Private Investigators is Manny's company. Aside from a couple buddies who occasionally help him out, he's the only investigator. Manny's got a picture with him, a blurry image from a surveillance video recorded in Jessica's apartment building. It's a picture of Detective Terrell. He's a black guy, tall, bald, with a powerful build and an intense expression on his face. Manny's plan is to show the picture to as many people as he can and see if any of them have had run-ins with Terrell, too. Let's go get these guys. <coughs> <coughs> So you might think a private eye would want to blend into the crowd, you know, slink into the shadows. That's not Manny's style. As soon as he gets out of the car, he makes a beeline for these kids who are sitting on a stoop down the street. We're still scrambling to catch up with him when he starts shouting questions at them. They take one look at him and us, and then they take off running. It's not hard to guess why they're scared. First of all, Manny looks like a cop. He talks like a cop, walks like a cop, in a neighborhood where a lot of people say they've been harassed by cops. And as if that wasn't enough, he's got that black jacket that says investigator in bold white letters across the chest. And then there's the fact that my producer and I are there, two white people with microphones. I don't think we're putting anyone at ease. But nothing seemed to bother Manny. He kept charging up the people with his chest puffed out, holding out his picture of Terrell. And people kept running from him. But he just stuck with his strategy, barreling down the street, working his mouth like a politician canvassing for votes. I'm a black guy trying investigators. Can I show you a picture? I'm about a cop that's harassing women and their children. I want to see if you know this guy. I follow Manny past a storefront church and a liquor store past a discount emporium called Forever Deal, past a check-cashing place and a mom-and-pop Jamaican restaurant. A few generations ago, back in the 60s, this street was the heart of a thriving jazz scene with clubs like the Apollo Bar and the Blue Morocco. Then the economy of the South Bronx collapsed, and people who could afford to leave mostly did, and every last one of the jazz clubs closed its doors. The young people who stayed behind were part of the generation that invented hip-hop, in fact, there are people who say that hip-hop was invented at parties right here, on the very stretch of Boston Road where I'm walking with Manny right now. Hold on one second. Can you lower that one second? I'm going to show you a picture. Lower that down for a minute. Lower it down for a minute. Lower it down. 
First of all, I'm fine. Let's get Emmanuel Gomez. I want to show you something. Hi. Okay. You know this guy? I'm standing with Manny and a couple guys who are hanging outside their apartment building. Manny shows them the photo of Terrell. They say they don't recognize him, but like a lot of people we talk to, they tell us that the local cops, officers from the 42nd Precinct, are always picking on them for petty things, playing their music outside, walking through the park after dark, just hanging out on the sidewalk with friends, like they're doing right now, could lead to an arrest for, quote, unlawful assembly. Why do you think they do it? I guess they feel like we ain't got no wins, no type of wins. We ain't got no wins, man. Can, can you say more about that? What, what do you mean by wins? Wins, like, we, we can't win this. It's like a war. We can't beat this war. They, they the winners. They on top. But why do they want to win it? Like, what's in it for them? I don't know. I guess they want a clean street, but that never happened because we live here. We don't have backyards. We can't go sit on the patio. Can't go to the park. The park closed at a certain time. Especially in the summertime, this is when it's the worst. Some, some of them are saying. The summertime is the worst because. Take it down, take it down what if you ain't got no air conditioning? No offense. You want to come outside and get some cool air, right? Summer. Why you can't sit on your own stoop? I spent a day canvassing the neighborhood with Manny, and I heard a lot of stories like this stories about police harassment, but not much about Terrell specifically. I started to have that familiar feeling, that donating the eye feeling. Maybe Manny was exaggerating. Maybe Terrell wasn't really as notorious as Manny made him out to be. But then I went out with Manny again, and I met these guys. I've been going over since I was like eight, eight years old. It's five or six young men, late teens, early 20s. Manny shows him the photo of Terrell, and they all start talking at once. He targets certain people in the area, you get what I'm saying? Like, like certain just people that he knew. People that he, that he see and he's he been like, locking up since young. Because he know he know what goes on in the area, so he just feel like anybody he see around here yeah, got target, something to do with target. it. Like, oh, yeah, 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 that's the type of person yeah, officer Terrell is like. Yeah. Off rip. Like I've been since young, since juvenile. We're standing outside a bodega on Webster Avenue, about a half mile from where Jessica and Pedro live. The guys start texting their friends, and the crowd starts to grow. Everyone has a story about Terrell, but they seem surprised that anyone's asking about him. Did you ever expect that anyone be, would be investigating this? Um, no. Some of part two of Conviction from Gimlet Media called The Porsche, presented by Saki Kanafo. Neon uses popular culture to talk about the history behind it. I've enjoyed recent episodes devoted to the Japanese animated film classic Akira, the TV series Vikings and the teenage mutant Ninja Turtles, who had to be called hero turtles in some parts of the world because ninja sounded too violent. And for each, host and historian Jem Daduchu delivers an informative, chatty-sounding monologue, exploring the historical facts that underpin these films and shows and games. So maybe it's what Viking life was really like, why anime is so popular in Japan, and whether ninjas did actually wear black. Here's some of an episode about the 1987 film Predator, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, which can be read as an allegory of the Vietnam War. 
The director is John McTiernan, and oh my God, did he have a hat trick of amazing movies, because Predator came out in 1987, and uh, he was under a lot of pressure to keep this under budget and to get pack in the action, okay? And he'd only made one movie before this, and it wasn't exactly an action fest, so he was determined to show that you know he could do tense scenes and lots of action, and it worked really well. It's really interesting listening to his director's commentary on the movie because it's terrible. The, his opening line as the movie starts is, man, I haven't seen this for ages. So he hasn't exactly come with notes. And by the end, this has jogged his memory. So you could basically fast forward half the movie if you just want to hear the director's commentary because he really gets into his stride about halfway through to the point where as the credits are rolling, he's still going on. You know, he's still remembered stuff. And it's like, this this is sloppy work. Could you have not have done this and then done it again with him? Because now he's remembering all the good stuff. So, uh, yeah, so John McTiernan directed Predator in 1987. Then a year later, the man directed Die Hard. And then two years later, his next movie was The Hunt for Red October. These are three really good thrillers and quite different as well. You could argue that Hunt for Red October is just as fantastical as Predator, but it's sort of a more grounded thriller than Predator. And Die Hard, in a way, was a reaction to people like Arnold Schwarzenegger because Bruce Willis looks like an everyman. The thing about Arnold Schwarzenegger is it looks like he's being chiseled out of granite in his prime. As people have pointed out with the Terminator, it's like, why does the Terminator have to look like a bodybuilder with a thick Austrian accent? He's an infiltration unit. He sticks out like a sore thumb. Yes, but Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime looked like he was a cyborg. Okay, He looks like he's machine underneath that. And if you'd got a great actor like Anthony Hopkins to play, play the Predator, he wouldn't have just had that physical threat going. So the clever thing is, the Predator in the movie, at one point towards the end, picks up Arnie by the throat and, and holds him up in one arm. And we all know that we couldn't do that with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And, the point, and when you see Arnie's feet swinging underneath him, you realise the Predator, is, everything Arnie is, the Predator is plus. And so what chance does Arnie have? And we, you know, I keep mentioning these stories about myths and things like that, but a critical part of storytelling is if we know the good guy can defeat the obstacle easily, it's not a very good story. So the fact that we've seen how good these commandos are, followed by the predator taking them down with ease, is a really clever way of making us feel very sorry for Arnold Schwarzenegger, who looks like he could lift up a truck. Full disclosure, at one point, he does lift up a truck uh, in, in this movie uh, to, to cause the, the big explosion because things have to blow up a lot in this movie. Few other things about the cast. Um, Jesse Ventura is uh, sort of quoted as saying, you know, this reminds me of my days of Vietnam, but this is a lot more fun because people weren't shooting at me. Jesse Ventura is being sort of right about that. Jesse Ventura was in a sort of an elite uh, force in Vietnam, and this is true. He did serve uh, for five years, as there's no doubt about that. Um, but it was it was a force that was involved in clearing obstacles on on the coast. And while he was ready to go, and while he was definitely a well trained soldier, he didn't see action in Vietnam, and he certainly didn't spend his time marching through the jungles. But hey, I'm not going to argue with the man, even though he's in his 70s, he could still happily rip my head off. He also has that great line uh, when somebody turns to him and says, you're hit, you're bleeding. And he says, 
ain't got time to bleed. Now, apparently Arnold Schwarzenegger, when he does the scene with throwing the machete into the guy's chest and comes up with the line, stick around. Um, this, line, this movie is full of great one-liners. Um, apparently th that was actually ad-libbed by Arnie and a reminder that he may be a very big muscular guy, but he's also a very smart guy. Uh, for me personally, uh, the greatest scene in this movie is when, uh, spoiler, Jesse Ventura is uh, shot and he's killed, at which point Bill Duke, Mac, picks up his minigun, old painless as it's called. I'll come on to that in one moment. Um, and he starts firing into the into the jungle and then everybody else joins in and literally there is a minute of solid gunfire. Grenades are fired, bullets are shot. It's just noise as people are screaming as the gun's going off and off and off again and again and again. And what happens is they they clip the predator. They find some blood on on a well. His blood, by the way, is a mixture of that glow stick stuff that you get and KY jelly. That's how they created the the look. It's actually quite lo-fi. A lot of the stuff in Predator. Um, but the point is, all that power, all that destructive force, achieved very little. So you could argue that Predator is, in a way, a metaphor for America's impact in jungle warfare, because in Vietnam. They had a huge amount of power and they didn't get what they wanted. And then you got all these activities in these covert ops in the jungles and they didn't, it didn't always go their way. And actually kind of sometimes they undeniably made the, the situation worse. However, it does have a great line connected with that when they find the blood. Um, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger says, if it bleeds, we can kill it. Subtle. I love the logic there. It's almost Aristotelian in its thought process there, Arnie, or Dutch as he's called. Um, also, I have to do a shout out to Arnie and Carl Weathers. So again, apologies, Carl, for getting uh, getting your name wrong earlier on. But uh, when they have the most manly handshake in cinema history, when they first meet, they slap their hands together in a way that no human beings ever do when they shake hands <laughs> and their biceps bulge and the sweat's dribbling off. They're probably just covered in baby oil at that point, but it's a super manly thing. But the point is that all these muscles, all these guns are pointless against an effective jungle predator. And uh, the fight at the end is about using traps and booby traps and ingenuity, which is exactly what the Viet Cong did against the Americans in Vietnam. So, uh, you know, again, you have these things where I'm pretty sure 1987, I'm sure there's a bunch of American veterans who would have sat down, watched that movie and went, this is a fantastical version of what I actually lived through. And, uh, you know, maybe that caused a little bit of pain for them. I've got one other little nugget. You got Billy the sort of Native American scout guy, uh, where, again, great line where Arnie goes up to him, goes, you know, what's wrong, Billy? No man. You're scared of no man. And he goes, whatever out, whatever's out there is no man. But that was played by Sonny Landham. And unfortunately, Son Sonny died uh, last year in 2017. Uh, but he was a big, tough, violent guy to the extent that he had bodyguards. Now, this isn't bodyguards to protect him. This is bodyguards to basically diffuse the situation about anybody around him and it, you know, he was a tough guy. And it's, again, another sign that on set there was a lot of machismo going on. And uh, Carl Weathers tells a wonderful story, goes, you know, look, to have this body 
you need to be in your prime. You need to work out. He goes, so what I did was I got up before everybody else and, you know, worked hard in the gym for maybe a couple of hours and then got back just as everybody was waking up and just be sitting there having breakfast, pretending as if my body was naturally, oh, you're going to the gym. Okay. Well, you know, maybe I'll see you later because I don't need it kind of thing. Um, so yeah, the, the, the whole thing sounded like half hell, half fun. Predator is you know, some people say it's a guilty pleasure. I'm going to argue against that. It's a well put together movie. Is it subtle? No. Are you looking for the character development? Uh-uh. But then again, Pride and Prejudice is terrible at gunfights, okay? For what it does, it does a really good job. The Neon Podcast and some of its Predator episode, presented by Jem Daduchu and produced by Dan Morell. And that's about it from the podcast app for now. This week we've been listening to So Where Are the Aliens, Finding Drago, Conviction and Neon. And please do keep those podcast recommendations coming in to me at pods at rnz.co.nz. Until next week, from me, Richard Scott, enjoy the rest of your weekend and thanks for listening. See you. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.